You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. What is science? Where does it come from? Is it a cupboard? Hello and welcome to Wonder Cupboard. I'm Ian. I'm Eleanor. And Eleanor, what will we be discussing this episode and next episode... <laughs> Well, that's that was a very subtle hint. Well done to the fact that this is our first two-parter. It certainly is. And also today we have our first guest. Shall we? Shall we introduce the guest? I think we should introduce the guest. Yeah. So our, our first guest is Savina Hossenfelder, which I have probably mispronounced, but she's going to introduce herself later. So, uh, so that's quite exciting. She's not with us right now. But she will be through the magic of having recorded an interview. <laughs> yes, that's right. And she's a theoretical physicist. Yes. So that's exciting. Yeah. So for this episode and the next one, we're going to talk about beauty in two slightly different ways. So today we're going to talk about beauty as an actual tool for discovery. Features such as simplicity or harmony or other aesthetic considerations often appear to be part of the creation of theories, right? So, for instance, between two theories that have the same explanatory power, one which is the simplest one, so that's Occam's razor and all all that. But also, you know, physicists have been trying to find symmetry in subatomic particles because it's kind of nice when things are mm-hmm. symmetrical, I suppose. So, yeah, so it's not just a matter of taking pretty pictures of galaxies or seeing a colleague's work and going, wow, that's one handsome variable, (laughs) wink, wink. We're talking about beauty as a component of decision-making, you know, and it's it's part of the process that serves to produce explanations about the world. So why do scientists care for equations to be beautiful or for particles to be symmetrical? What does it mean for the actual disciplines that apply these principles? The next episode will be more about how we represent nature. Does it matter that we call our galaxies, pretending the universe is a psychedelic dance hall? That we represent nature in exciting documentaries? But also we'll talk about the role that illustrations and illustrators have in biology. Talk about cute animals, (laughs) improbable skeletons. So yeah, you'll see or hear whatever. Um, So let's talk about equations. There is a sense in which people describe certain mathematical proofs or equations as elegant. It's always a bit hard to pin down what is actually meant by this. It seems that simplicity is considered beautiful, but then some find beauty in proofs that are not simple at all, like the proof of Fermat's last theorem. I've heard of that. Yeah, it's it's a famous, uh, it's very famous amongst the last theorems. So Pierre de Fermat just to give a bit of context, was a French lawyer who lived in the 1600s and dabbled in mathematics in his spare time. His work on calculus was very influential. But the thing he's mostly known for is his last theorem. He just scribbled it on the margins of a book, the Arithmetica by Diophantus in 1637. The theorem itself is quite simple. You take two integers, that is, basic numbers that, you know, that you would have learned before you were five, like 36 and and eight. Uh, Vanilla numbers? Yeah, like jeans and t-shirt numbers. The numbers you see every day in the office and you found out their name once, but now you can't remember it. 
but you still wave at them every day and hope you never have to identify them to a paramedic. Mm. Yeah. They're, they're called integers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So take two integers, elevate them to the power of any number over two. So if I had six and seven, we'd do six to the power of three or six cubed. Yeah. And seven to the power of three. Yeah. Okay. And, and then add them up. Five, five, nine. I used a calculator. Um, I was about to be impressed, but there you go. Um, I've relieved you of any such burden. <laughs> uh, so, well done, the calculator. So, the result will be a number that can't be expressed by another integer at the same power as the previous two. So, a to the power of n plus b to the power of n can never equal c to the power of n. So, with my example, 559 can never equal another integer to the power of 3. That's correct. Cool. Now, this writing it on the margins of the book business was quite smart because he actually didn't know how to prove this. But in his commentary, he writes that he didn't write it down because he didn't have the space. Because, <laughs> you know, that book was the last of the paper found in France. Mm, mm. And, um, you know, he just he just couldn't find another one. No. He just, he, he, he tried. Mm -hmm. He went to the shop. There was mm. nothing, you know, and then it was dinner time. And I was just yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. I don't mean, interrupt dinner time. Well, what are you going to do? Instantly, listeners, I also know Ian McKellen's phone number. Uh, okay, prove it. Uh, well, we don't have time to go into that. So let's carry on with the episode. <laughs> So people have tried to come up with a proof of Fermat's last theorem for more than 350 years. And it was finally put together in 1995 by Andrew Wiles, who has since uh, accrued titles, thanks to this. He's a Sir and an FRS, so fellow mm. of the Royal Society. Uh, it's a long-ass proof, and yet a sort of Baroque beauty has been attributed to it. It feels like there's something like taste in equations, a bit like minimalism versus maximalism in interior decor. Uh, like Steve Jobs versus RuPaul. Yeah, it's basically, that's what it is. Um, so if we continue with more of an interior design vibe, Ari Poincaré, uh, who was a mathematician and a theoretical physicist who lived in France between the second half of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, was a definite Scandinavian mid-century decor kind of guy. Or, you know fashion-wise, a Steve Jobs mm -hmm. kind of guy. He thought that simplicity and unity made the theory beautiful. Paul Dirac, who was a 20th century physicist, was more of a rogue maximalist. He thought that modern science had got over the principle of simplicity, thanks to the theory of relativity, but significantly, that didn't make beauty unimportant. So something can be beautiful, even if it's not scandy. Okay. So this is a quote from, from him. What makes the theory of relativity so acceptable to physicists, in spite of its going against the principle of simplicity, is its great mathematical beauty. This is a quality which cannot be defined any more than beauty in art can be defined. I mean, some people would say that's not true, but anyway. Um, um, but which people who study mathematics usually have no difficulty in appreciating. The theory of relativity introduced mathematical beauty to an unprecedented extent into the description of nature. Then he talks about how the theory of relativity rests upon the Lorentz group, which is a mathematical tool to understand space-time, which is apparently more beautiful than its predecessor, the Galileo group. 
What this means is so obscure, he doesn't even try to explain it. It's something that has to do with the intuition of mathematicians. <laughs> How did you know I was a size 10? A mathematician's intuition, darling. Werner <laughs> <laughs> um, Heisenberg, who gave his name to his famous uncertainty in principle. Um, it's, it's great stuff, but we don't really have time to delve into the uncertainty principle here, especially because it's incredibly complicated and misunderstood. So just have a Google, um, get into a rabbit hole if you want to know more about it. So he was even called to address the Bavarian Academy of Fine Arts. In his delightful lecture, he makes the case that beauty in science has to do with the definition of beauty that was put forward in the West by the ancient Greeks. That is that beauty is, and I quote, the proper conformity of the parts to one another and to the whole. Like Ikea, just to bring us back to Scandinavian furniture. Yes, exactly. So, on one hand, beauty in science means that the different components of the objects of study fit together nicely. But also, there is an overarching harmony in the picture of reality that comes out of research. Heisenberg argues that these two features of beauty correspond neatly to two main kinds of research, empirical and theoretical. Empirical researchers are in charge of the conformative parts to one another. They collect observations, they measure things, they run experiments, they're the boots on the ground. While theoretical researchers are the ones who come up with models of reality, they try to guess how a certain set of phenomena work. They are the ones who come up with laws, which in his characterization of the Greek conception of beauty is the conformity of the parts to a whole. Of course, says Heisenberg, these two kinds of activity cannot survive on their own. Having a bunch of numbers without any attempt at an explanation doesn't really help much. You can't use them for prediction, for instance. It doesn't further our understanding of reality. Like my collection of great barcodes. Um, a thing of pure beauty, though. Mm. Um, on the other hand, if you just had pure speculation, without any support from experience, you can build the most amazing theories. But there is no guarantee that they are anchored in, you know, reality. They would just be fictions. Like my theory that you can tell a person's personality from their phone number. Or even worse than that, you may find yourself picking and choosing data to support your theory and making reality fit into your picture. So that's what beauty in science to him is. The cooperation of different expertises producing a rich and multi-layered picture of reality. So if there is anything we can take home from this brief rundown is that physicists have opinions on beauty. Some have very strong opinions on beauty. How does this influence research today? Let's remember that empirical physics nowadays is not throwing things of towers <laughs> or being hit by apples or any of the other things that most definitely didn't happen. It involves mega infrastructure like colliders and telescopes. Are we building all this stuff because equations ought to be pretty? That's worrying, mm. if that's the case. So we asked someone who should know, and that is Sabina that we introduced earlier. She's a physicist and she has written a whole book about beauty. Wonder Cupboard. Uh, I'm Sabina Hausenfelder. I'm a theoretical physicist at the Frankfurt Institute for Advanced Studies. Thanks very much for joining us. It's fantastic. So you've written a lot about beauty and physics. 
Um, could you give us just a general idea of what role beauty plays in physics? Like, when do physicists appeal to beauty? What kind of uh, function does it have? So, in theoretical physics, uh, we deal with uh, theories that are made of mathematics, uh, basically. So, um, typically, there, there are two kinds of questions that theoretical physicists try um, to answer. One is um, you have some data that you want to explain and you don't have this explanation, so you try to come up with a theory. The other issue is that the theories that you may have already have certain shortcomings and you try to improve them. Um, so um, in, in both of these cases, you're basically looking for the right mathematics to do the job. And this is where arguments from beauty become important because people use them to select certain mathematics. Um, so the, the kinds of beauty that I'm talking about are not, you know, the every every person's beauty kind of argument. You know, sunsets are beautiful, that kind of stuff. But they're they're very concrete mathematical properties of the theories. And uh, the reason that I keep going on about this is that um, in the foundations of physics, um, people have come to use these very specific notions of mathematical beauty, and they work really badly. They've been using them for 40 years, and they're not working. You know, the theories just don't do what they're supposed to do, but they're not able to give up on them. So they, they've really gotten stuck on that. And um, this is why I'm complaining about it, because I think it's time to throw out these um, ideas of beauty and find better ones. <laughs> so could, you, could you tell us any examples of times when beauty has been used badly? Well, we're living in such a time now is what I'm saying. So uh, one of these beauty criteria um, that I write a lot about uh, in, in my book is what they call naturalness. Mm -hmm. So um, a good theory um, should be natural. And that's not just a vague word, but it's a concrete mathematical criterion that says, um, you know, to make a long story short, if you have a mathematical theory that contains uh, numbers that do not have units, so just pure numbers, then these numbers should be close to one. Mm. They should not be very large and they should not be very small because they would be ugly. Mm. <laughs> so so um, that that's what you want your theory to be like. And um, people have used this to construct pretty new theories um, that tend to predict new particles. Uh, unfortunately, none of these particles have been found. Mm. Okay, so, so this has been going on since the 1980s. Um, and it's just not working. And it's, it's, it's failing right now because um, th these arguments from naturalness were the reason why so many physicists thought that the Large Hadron Collider, that I'm sure you've heard of, you know, oh, yeah. big machine in Geneva, <laughs> should, <laughs> yeah. be, should be seeing new particles besides the Higgs boson. So they found the Higgs boson, um, everything good with that. Um, that was a solid prediction. But there were many more predictions for um, particles that make up dark matter or the so-called supersymmetric particles or um, additional dimensions of space and so on. And these ideas were all based on naturalness. Mm -hmm. So um, the theories that we have them right now, they are not natural. So they're not pretty in a particular way. And you can fix this problem by making them prettier. 
Uh, and then you get the conclusion that all these new things should have showed, shown up, but they didn't. Mm. So that's, it's, it's not working. So it's historically, arguments from beauty have not worked very well um, in the foundations of physics. There are a lot of examples for this. The tragedy is that um, theoretical physicists uh, tend to forget about them and they only recall the instances where arguments from beauty worked. Mm. But if you look back in the history, um, there's probably the best known examples are um, Kepler's platonic solids. Mm. You know, that this was an idea that he basically pulled out of thin air and just thought, well, it's so pretty, you know, you have these regular polyhedra and you can stack them inside each other. And then you can use this to approximately calculate the orbits of five planets. And um, yeah, you know, it's not it's not a great prediction, but it kind of about fits. Okay, it's also just wrong because, well, for starters, we now know that the orbits of the planets are not actually circles. Mm. So that's the one thing. But the other thing is that we know that there are more than five planets. Mm. So it just it just doesn't work. Yeah. So this is, was a beautiful idea that was just wrong. And uh, yeah, another uh, of these beautiful ideas was, as I just mentioned, the idea that the orbits of the planets are circles. Mm. This is something that people held on to for a long time because they thought, well, you know, there, there were a lot of religious arguments being made at the time because the circle is the most perfect uh, curve that you can think of. And certainly if God had any choice, he would have chosen the circle. And they held on to this for a long time because... You know, there was this idea with the epicycles that uh, you can always make circles around the circles around the circles. So even if you run into conflict with observation, you can always make more circles. <laughs> so <laughs> you can try to fix the problem. And there, there are more examples of this uh, in the history of physics. Um, a, a lot of very prominent physicists, for example, try to use arguments from beauty to construct uh, grand unified theories, theories of everything. Uh, and it just didn't work. You know, there's people like uh, Eddington, Einstein, Heisenberg. They all had their beauty-based theories that uh, most people today have never heard of because they just didn't work. Mm. Um, so so I think that the physicists have this kind of collective amnesia for <laughs> ideas of beauty that failed. So two things. One, what kind of beauty are we talking about? So you mentioned that it's... A mathematical property so I, i'm really interested in this fact that some numbers are more beautiful than others and i just don't really understand what that means well so the the whole problem is that it is just some postulate there is no deeper reason for it so i keep saying it's it's an aesthetic argument yeah. They just think it's ugly. And I, I, I will explain in a moment where this idea comes from. It has a long history. Um, but basically, it's an argument from beauty. And now, uh, you know, philosophers have told me that I, I shouldn't call it an argument from beauty. It's really a metaphysical argument uh, or just a philosophical argument. Or others have said that it's just a belief. Uh, but it doesn't really matter exactly what you call it. Uh, the point is um, that it's it's not a principle that is, is based on uh, empirical facts. It's just something that they like, mm. basically. And uh, now, um, what's, what's with these numbers? So, um, Roughly speaking, the the idea behind arguments from naturalness is that very large or small numbers are somehow improbable. 
So if you have a very large or very small number, that requires an explanation. So actually, uh, you know, to be precise, um, in some cases, large or small numbers are allowed if you have an explanation for why they are large or small. Okay. Um, so, so that's the thing. And, um, you know, here's an example that I, that I like to um, use to explain where this comes from. Um, imagine you walk by a field or, or a forest or something like this. Um, and you will see a lot of trees or a lot of flowers or what have you. Okay. And they, they all, they're all kind of about the same size, you know, they're not exactly the same size, but about the same size. So, um, if you want to construct a number that does not have units, because that's the only really meaningful number that, that you have in the theories, you would take say the ratio of two heights of trees or something like that. Mm -hmm. You would get a number that is close to one. It would not be exactly one, but it, it would not be very large and it would not be very small. Now, if you if you walked by a forest and you saw a tree that was like 100 million kilometers high, mm -hmm. you would say, well, that's unnatural. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that that would give you, if you take the ratio of the height to one of the other trees, that would give you a very large or very small number. Okay. And, and and so it's exactly this idea of naturalness um, that goes into this this construction of the theories um, that physicists use. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is that um, the reason why you think that this would be very unnatural if you saw something like this is that you've seen a lot of trees. You know, yeah. you, you have a lot of statistics. You know what a forest looks like. You know what a tree looks like. Um, so you actually have collected em empirical information from which you can make an extrapolation. So that, that's a perfectly reasonable um, uh, reaction to have to, to such an odd tree. Is that, well, that requires an explanation. That's unnatural. But the issue is that the way that physicists use this criterion, it applies to basically fundamental um, natural constants. Mm -hmm. um, these are the constants that, that appear in the theories. And uh, we, we have no statistics for these constants. We, we only have this one set of laws of nature that describe our universe, period. And these numbers are just what they are. So there's no way that we can ever um, make a statement how probable or improbable they are. They are just what they are. And we go and measure them. And then that's that. So um, this is why this, this whole idea of naturalness uh, has absolutely no scientific basis. Mm -hmm. It just, you, you cannot even speak about the probability of these things because we have only this one instance. Mm. No, that's so really this, is, this, is, this yeah. is one of the, uh, yeah, th this is one of the arguments of, uh, from beauty that uh, people use in these fields. Mm -hmm. um, there are a few other ones. And um, if you want, I can say something about it. Or yes, please. You yeah. just want so, so one of the most, one of the best known um, arguments from beauty is the appeal of uh, symmetries um, or unification. Yeah. So this is something which uh, has historically played a big role. Uh, symmetries have been remarkably successful in the development of the currently accepted fundamental laws. So that's um, Einstein's theory of general relativity and um, the standard model of particle physics. So symmetries play a big role there. And so um, it's reasonable, I think, that you try to continue this success story. 
And that, that's what people have tried uh, in the 1980s when the standard model of particle physics was uh, completed. And they thought it's just, you know, it could be prettier. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not as unified as they would like it to be. It's not as symmetric as it could be. So they have basically postulated that it, it has to be prettier and there has to be a larger symmetry underlying what we already know. This is what is called uh, a grand unified um, theory, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes called GUT for short. Um, and it didn't work. People have written down theories for this uh, starting in the 1980s. And these theories make predictions, uh, one of which is that protons are unstable. So this is something that you can look for. People have looked for it and they haven't found it. So this has actually ruled out the first couple of um, ideas for grand unified theories. But physicists have not given up on the idea and said what they have done is that they have made these theories more complicated. Uh, so that's very similar to the story with the epicycles. You know, you don't want to give up of your, uh, on your, your beautiful idea, so you make it more complicated so that it somehow still uh, fits to the observations that you have. And people are still talking about grand unified theories. And I just think, well, maybe it's time to give up this idea, you know, <laughs> maybe the, the next theory that we're looking for does not have a larger symmetry group. You know, there's maybe it worked in the past, but it stopped working. So let's think of something else now. Yeah. Is that then what drives experimental efforts? So you get all the mega colliders and now there's talk of even bigger ones. Yeah, that, that's the issue. So, um, you know, you may say, well, who cares what, what these theoretical physicists are because yeah. theoretical physicists are not all that expensive. You know, all they need is, um, you know, pen and paper and maybe a little bit of coffee and so just <laughs> let them have a little fun. But the issue is, as you point out correctly, that um, these theories inform what kind of experiment we make. Mm -hmm. And some of these experiments are really, really, really expensive. And um, so it was not, I have to point this out because otherwise particle physicists would, you know, call me up at night and complain about it. This was not an issue for the Large Hadron Collider because for the Large Hadron Collider, we had this prediction of the Higgs boson. So this was not a beauty-based prediction, but the other predictions were. And um, now the thing is that um, if you make your predictions based on these shaky ideas that the world has to be more beautiful, um, then you have a really high risk that your experiment doesn't found, find what you predicted. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've seen with all these searches for dark matter experiment that people have done for 30 years and, and didn't return anything. And um, even, even though that was not the reason why the Large Hadron Collider was built, we also see it at the Large Hadron Collider now because these predictions were all wrong. And, and now there's the question, of course, should, should we rely on these predictions uh, to build a next larger one? And I think the answer is um, obviously no. You know, it doesn't make it doesn't make sense. So these these ideas, these theories are basically guesses. You know, they're guesses based on this idea that the world has to be beautiful in a particular way. And that's that's not a good reason to spend twenty billion dollars. Yeah. Do Do you think that's the worst consequence of this attitude? Well, you know, I, I think twenty billion dollars is a lot of money, but uh, <laughs> you know, you, you can have the, you can take the point of view that well, it's not my money, right? So who cares? Um, but uh, I actually think the bigger problem is that um, if we continue to fund that line of research, it will attract a lot of smart people 
mm-hmm. who will then be very encouraged to continue exactly the same thing uh, that people have been doing before. Mm-hmm. So, um, so CERN has these plans to build this next larger collider. This is where uh, where the number with the 20 billion comes from. This is actually only an estimate for the construction cost. It does not include the operation cost, mm-hmm. which is about a billion per year, and the thing would be running for 20 years. So we're actually talking more about something like $40 billion. So that that's really a lot of money. So if if this money would be invested, you know, then this would make uh, particle physics a very very popular research area, and it would it would attract a lot of smart people, and it would draw them away from areas where I think we would be much more likely to make progress. Mm-hmm. So and and that for me is is kind of the biggest problem. Mm-hmm. You know, there are only so many smart people on the planet, <laughs> and I, I don't want to waste them on producing more beautiful ideas that will just turn out to be wrong and i suppose in a sense it's self-fulfilling because people request money to test out their ideas and then the researchers go where the money is and then those researchers then have more ideas and request more money and it just carries on and on and gets bigger and bigger (laughs) yeah and that that has been going on for quite some while yeah sounds very tiring (laughs) (laughs) well you know, the the good thing is that um, the results from the Large Hadron Collider so far are pretty clear um, because they they basically ruled out um, everything that could be ruled out, which leaves the stuff that cannot be ruled out. Um, and I, I know that even a lot of particle physicists are thinking really hard about whether it's actually worth the investment um, to, to build a larger one. And I think that's good. So I, I think that there is some rethinking in the community that's just based on, on hard data. To your knowledge, is there anything in physics that is really ugly, as in by those standards, but works? So an argument against the beauty. Well... Um, yeah, so, so I, to, I know two examples. One example is that we, we I previously briefly mentioned dark matter. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe I should briefly explain what this is about. Uh, so um, if we look out in, in the cosmos, you know, beyond our own solar system at whole galaxies or um, galaxy clusters, stuff like this, um, then our observations do not fit together with the predictions from the theories if we only include the matter that we know is in the standard model of particle physics and uh, general relativity. So basically the theories that we we know and like and have well confirmed uh, are not sufficient to explain what we observe. And um, the the uh, most popular way to fix this discrepancy between the predictions and the observations is to say, well, there has to be a, a new kind of matter out there. That's the so-called dark matter. And we just distribute it wherever it's needed um, so, so that the observations fit on the data again. And um, it, it works, uh, but it has certain problems. Um, I, I don't want to go into this because I would be talking for an hour. Um, <laughs> so the alternative explanation is what is called modified gravity. And that basically says the matter that we know of that is in a standard model is entirely sufficient, but um, gravity works differently on um, these large scales. Mm-hmm. L- loosely speaking, that's the story. <clears throat> and um, 
Now, um, this theory of modified gravity, I think, has a lot speaking for it. It has made uh, several predictions that actually came true. So it's actually well confirmed by data. But um, astrophysicists and cosmologists, uh, by and large, don't believe in it. Why? Because the theory is really ugly. And and I, I I agree with this, you know. If you look at the mathematics, it's ugly, but it works. Right. So that's the remarkable thing. And I, I just think that there's a you know, there's there's a um th that's not a sound reason to um not close a look at this theory, but I think it is the reason that people consciously or unconsciously um use. Right. The other example that would come to my mind is quantum mechanics. It's, it's not such a good example because, you know, personally, I don't think quantum mechanics is ugly. Uh, you know, for me, it's just, you know, it's a theory and you use it and that's that. I don't have any particular opinion about it. But I do know that a lot of people think it's ugly for one reason or the other, um, mostly because they think it's unintuitive and there's supposedly something wrong with this. I don't know. But um, yeah, so that's what they say. But quantum mechanics works extremely well. Mm -hmm. I, I was just interested to know what you think about future directions. So you say that where we're going at the moment is not very enticing. So what do you think physics, that's a very broad question, but what do you think should be the direction in terms of particle physics and, and all that? Yeah, so if you're, if you're asking about the foundations of physics in particular, mm. then I think um, we should stop trying to solve problems that don't exist. You know, if, if a theory is not as beautiful as we might want it to be, that's not a problem that requires a solution. Um, but the theories um, have real problems that do require solutions, and we also have real um, discrepancy discrepancies between observations and data, for example, dark matter is what mm. I was just talking about. So these are good problems to closer study, um, where I think sooner or later we'll make progress if we focus on on, on that. Um, so this is for what the foundations of physics are concerned, um, fo focus on the real problems. Um, but I think that um, there is a bigger problem behind this, which is um, how can it possibly be that a community of, um, you know, some 10,000 people or something um, keeps repeating uh, something that obviously does not work. Mm. As I said, this is not this is not a recent story. This has been going on for 30 years. And, um, you know, you, you might say maybe the first 10 years it was a reasonable thing to try, but at some point they should have learned the lesson. They did not. Mm. And I think that this... Um, draws attention to a much deeper problem that you can get in um, communities um, of scientists where you have a lot of like-minded people um, who support each other. Um, you get these flawed methodologies that people continue to use just because everyone does it. And uh, it's completely accepted norm. So um, they don't see anything wrong with it. Um, and, and that's a general problem I think we see in scientific communities, not only in physics, uh, by no means only in physics. And uh, I think this is a problem that we uh, have to find a solution for. Do you think there's a, at the moment we, it feels like the field of science is under attack more than ever? 
um, from uh, people who are, you know, uh, anti-vaccine or even from flat earthers, which is something we've talked about on this podcast before. Do you think there's a tendency for scientists to sort of close ranks and become more stuck in their ways? I'm not sure that science is more under attack now than um, it was, I don't know, 20, 40 years ago. It's just that the people who attack it are more visible. You know, they they have a bigger platform. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if you look at the statistics, uh, you know, where people have been polled about whether they trust scientists or not, it's not like people have stopped trusting scientists. So it, it, it doesn't look quite as bad as some of the headlines might make you think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's what, what I take away uh, from, from these uh, polls. But, yeah, I, I do think that this public pressure has some effect uh, on people. Um, you know, there are certain things that they don't want to talk about publicly. And um, I, I get this myself because um, actually if I talk to people in the community, um, you know, without being on record uh, like, I, <laughs> like I'm now, a lot of people agree with me that there is a problem. But they're like, why do you have to talk about this publicly? You know, we, we should try to sort this out among ourselves. Mm-hmm. And now you, you want to know why why do I talk about it publicly anyway? Um, that's because I don't think they will sort it out among themselves. It's not going to happen. So do you think there should be an input from people who are not in scientific community in order to solve this problem? Definitely, because right. science is so, so important um, for our societies. And it's not working properly. You know, we, we need to fix this problem. But scientists are not in the position to actually do it. If they even see the problem, they can't do anything about it because they're stuck in this particular way that the system, you know, reinforces itself, as as, as you said earlier. So I, I really think that public pressure is the only way to solve this problem. You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. By the way, if you heard kids scuttling around during this bit, it's not because your house is haunted. They were Sabine's kids, which is lovely. It's nice to be reminded that scientists are people, isn't it? Yeah, your house may still be haunted, though. Let's, let's not rule that out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let, let's think some more about the role that beauty has in discovery. That is about its epistemic role. By the way... Epistemic is a great word. It is the adjective related to epistemology, which is the branch of philosophy that deals with knowledge and means that concerns knowledge. It's compact and learning it will allow you to talk about all sorts of things such such as epistemic justice, epistemic justification, epistemic racism. And it's just wonderful. I I recommend it. Uh, Hear epistemic and others when you sign up to Eleanor's Word Club. First three words are free, $7.99 a month after that. I so want to do that. It would be good. It would be great. Spin-off podcast. <laughs> it's just going to be me reading words off a list. Yeah, but not too many. You don't want to give it give Velvet. it away too quick. <laughs> Juice. <laughs> Tangerine. <laughs> um, so let's talk about the epistemic role of beauty, shall we? So you're talking about um, what beauty means in terms of knowledge. Yeah. Uh, what kind of role it has in the production of knowledge. Okay. 
there are a few different schools of thought here. You can think about them in a way that we first talked about in our episode two, and that is instrumentalism versus realism. Um, plus there's an interloper that we'll talk about as well. So a realist would tell you that science means looking into the structure of reality and reporting your findings. This structure is independent from us. It's out there, hidden somewhere. And what scientists do is discovering bits of it, contributing to a bigger picture. Mathematician Paul Erdos referred to the object of mathematical research as the book with uh, uppercase initials, uh, basically God's recipe for the world. Or, you know, like assembly instructions. Oh my God, Ikea again. This is definitely a pattern and not confirmation bias. Um, does this mean that God is the, like, the little man in the Ikea instructions? That's, um, that's a compelling theory, which I would encourage you to explore in your own time. Okay. Because we've got things to do now. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so Paul Erdos, though, um, he thought that if something is in the book, it must be pretty. An instrumentalist, on the other hand, would disagree on the very existence of the book. Theories are not what we got from peering into the structure of reality. They're useful tools we use to make sense of reality, but they are very much human-made. They work for us, that's all. Poincaré, who espoused this instrumentalist view... Espoused is another word you'll hear on Eleanor's word club. <laughs> yes. Uh, so Poincaré... Um, brought in under determination in order to justify choices based on beauty. Under determination is also a beautiful concept. It's a epistemology's younger sister, the cool one. It means that a set of observations can lend itself to different interpretations. So whatever interpretation you choose, at the end is underdetermined. There is a little gap between the observations and what you make of it. And that's where other considerations start to matter. Okay, so let's say I have a set of observations about the movement of planets, and my question is, which is at the centre of the universe, the Earth or the Sun? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a good example. So th that might actually be quite hard if you're using the observations about orbits alone to work out which is which, because it depends on, for instance, what shapes those orbits have. You know, perhaps these guys are just all over the place. They go forward for a bit, then back, then swish around, and then they're on their merry way. So the Earth could be the center and be consistent with observations. Or if the orbits are regular, then Earth can't be the center and it must be the sun. But I don't know which is which. Right. So if I were you, I'd start thinking, what else have you got? Well... I think traditionally Earth in the centre has been kind of strong. So I'll just go with that one. Or I can go, wait a minute, that's overcomplicating things for no good reason. Maybe it's just that the sun is there. In this case, simplicity settles it. Or beauty or whatever you want to call it. Poincaré's point is, since it doesn't matter whether a theory corresponds to anything out there, if I have to choose, I'll pick the pretty one. So, in a lineup of potential criminals, if Poincaré doesn't recognize any of them, he'd just convict the one he fancied. Yeah. Okay. Or the one who turned him down, you know. <laughs> um, so, I was speaking about a third approach. Beauty is a way to enhance the judgment of scientists. That is, scientists are exposed to a range of theories during their education, some better than others. And they eventually develop a sense of what a good theory 
looks like. They can't articulate it as such. It is more something in the realm of intuition. But it does have a, a role in theory building. It gets the attention of researchers and should be listened to. Now, we've listened to Sabine and we know the potential shortcomings of this attitude, especially when we are told that this feeling of beauty is something only scientists have and we should listen to them and just shut the fuck up and build them toys. Another instance of harm due to idealizing beauty comes from economics. The 2007-2008 crisis was caused partly by over-reliance on beauty, which in economics takes the form of rationality. The assumption in the predominant school of economics at the time was that people act perfectly rationally and therefore so do markets because markets are made of people. Because of the faith in the idea that markets are rational, no one could predict the financial crisis. And even if they could have done, some would have thought that it was necessary or somewhat desirable. Because if you believe in the principle that everyone acts rationally and in their own interest, the market can make mistakes. Crises happen to redress the balance when necessary. Now, things are changing and finally there is recognition that people are not perfectly rational and life is messy. Behavioral economics looks into erratic behavior and irrationality, indulging into the murky areas of investment behavior. So that's that for, for this episode. Mm-hmm. Our next episode is Beauty Part 2, Pretty Pictures. How will we manage to talk about it in an audio medium? We have no idea. Stay tuned. Let's do the references. Yeah. And now, the references. So inspiration for this episode came from Sabine's book, Lost in Math. It's a great read. She's very good at explaining things to non-specialists without making you feel like an idiot. Like a book that I shall not name (laughs) because I am a lady, (laughs) Um, but written by a very famous in Britain physics uh, guy that explains physics to the masses and some people think he's dreamy. (laughs) And his surname rhymes with box. Um, so there's this, this this physics book that I read that I was trying to I was trying to understand quantum mechanics a bit better, mm-hmm. and I had to close the book at some point because he wrote something along the lines of "You might want to reread this paragraph because it's very hard." <laughs> so are you fucking kidding me? I reread whatever I want. I'm my, <laughs> I'm my own person, you know. Crichton box. Crichton. As it was just similar to his his real name, which shall remain a mystery. A mystery, I tell you. So, so anyway, so that this book is not like that. Okay. She Good. She, she respects your dignity as a reader. Yes. Thank you, Sabine. So the rest are um, articles. One of them is called Beauty in Science, a new model of the role of aesthetic evaluations in science, which is very good. It's a philosophical read. An Ode to Ugly Physics by Qi Ying, um, which is full of excellent examples of cases in which cobbled together science just worked, including for people like Richard Feynman, for instance. It's, it's quite technical. So I wanted to in- include some examples in the episode, but it would have been just very difficult for me to explain yeah. uh, because it was very difficult for me to understand. <laughs> um, but if you're interested, that, that's really, really good. There's an article from The New Scientist called Proof and Beauty by Ian Stewart. 
How Did Economists Get It So Wrong by Paul Krugman. Then two articles by a philosopher called Milena Ivanova, who has written a lot on um, the aesthetics of science. So she's good to look up if you're interested. She's published Poincaré's Aesthetics of Science in uh, Synthese, which is a fairly well-known philosophy of science journal, and Aesthetics in Science in the British Journal for the Philosophy of Science. Then there's another article called The Meaning of Beauty in the Exact Sciences. And if you want to read Dirac's delightful lecture, it's called The Relation Between Mathematics and Physics. So that's that. What have we learned today? Today we've learned that if you want a fancy car but need to justify the expense, just tell yourself you need to prove a beautiful theory about motorways. Wonder Cupboard. So something amazing from Sabina's work is a list of particles, subatomic particles that have been postulated by various theories and papers and all that sort of thing. Uh, and they make for there's there's a lot of very funny names here, so we're just going to go through them. Shall I read the list? Yes, please. Prions, spermions, dions or dions, magnetic monopoles. That sounds really Victorian, isn't it? It does. It's kind of it's kind of um, steampunk. <laughs> yeah, simps, wimps, <laughs> wimpzillas. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. At the point where you're adding Zilla on the end of something, rename the wimp bit. Yeah, it's like everyone was about to leave. And mm. I'm like, it's just like wimps, but kind of bigger, chunkier or something. I don't know. Zilla, Zilla something. Just let's go. Mm. Uh, axions, flaxions, erebons, <laughs> cornucipons, 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 cornucipons. Giant magnons. Nice. Uh, maximons. Which are bigger than giant mag- mag- magnons or smaller, you think? I don't know. It's difficult. You've got two terms which are kind of competing there. Yeah. And then there's a macros. So which is bigger, giant magnon, maximon or macros? I think I ate a maximon. <laughs> oh, no, maximon. Okay. Uh, branons. Nice. Uh, skirmions. Sky, skirmions, yeah, skirmions, mions. Yeah, that's um, that's the Icelandic yogurt particle. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, Cuscutons, which is like you know, step aside, cronuts. We've got croutons made of couscous. <laughs> oh, that sounds awful. <laughs> I know, right? Okay, we're banning cuscutons straight off before they've been discovered. Plankons. That's this classic one. Mm. And sterile neutrinos. It's a bit judgy, isn't it? It is a bit judgy, yeah. yeah. So there we go. Particles. Invent your own. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, make up a band name out of them. Yeah. Um, or, you know, quiz. If you're in Britain and you do things like pub quizzes, like quiz team, you know, the giant magnons. That's good. The wimpzillas. I've got two tickets to see uh, Maximons later on at the O2 um, <laughs> Indigo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Get back in shape with Flaxions, the <laughs> new exercise regime. Yeah, I mean, the business ideas this episode are just 
coming thick and fast. Yeah, we want 10%, please. 